This talk is offered by Ordinary Minds Zen teacher Andrew Tutel. Andrew is an Australian Dharma heir of Barry Majid and is dedicated to extending Barry's vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Find out more at ordinarymind.com.au. Andrew's Zen teachings are made possible by donations from people like you. So we'll be continuing on the theme of suffering and the end of suffering. After all, what else would a Buddhist talk about? What's the first noble truth? What's the first noble truth? Exactly. So, this one's called Taking Refuge, 4th of May at Yarrawarra Aboriginal Cultural Centre, 2023. So tonight we will discuss the practice of taking refuge as it relates to the question of suffering and the ending of suffering. I want, to, I want us to clarify the difference between psychological suffering and what we might describe as our natural emotional responses that arise from being creatures who become attached to each other. I don't think grief, for example, should necessarily be problematized. However, it can get complicated by the thinking mind. So in some ways, I want to suggest that we can, at times at least, bring an end to psychological suffering. But natural emotions, such as grief, we don't want to bring an end to them because they are simply manifestations of our love. But neither do we want to complicate them or dissociate away from them. We can add an unnecessary layer of psychological suffering on top of the raw grief. So our core practice of non-separation from this moment is the key guide to how we approach this experientially. We will explore what it means to take refuge experientially, what it means to clarify suffering and the ending of suffering experientially. I stress the word experientially because that is what our practice is all about, experiential learning. Theory can be helpful, but practice is about tasting the water, not describing it. However, before discussing refuge, I want to review some of the material I covered last night. That is the nature of the socially constructed self and the key Buddhist insight into no self and how this helps us to understand the form our suffering takes. Last night we made the distinction between psychological suffering and pain, physical pain and emotional pain, and I connected psychological suffering with the emptiness at the core of the fictional separate self and the attempt to fill this lack with various projects. And I connected pain to the natural emotional responses to grief and loss. I just wanted to quote too from Joko Beck's first book in a chapter she called True Suffering and False Suffering. She uses slightly different words, but has a very interesting take on it as well. So she was saying, Yesterday I was talking to a friend who recently had a major operation 
and, had been, and has been recovering. I asked her what would be a good subject for a Dharma talk and she laughed and said, patience and pain. She found it very interesting that in the days immediately following her operation, the pain was clear, clean and sharp, and it was no problem. Then, as she became a little stronger, the mind began to work and the suffering began. All her thoughts about what was happening to her began to appear. So again, she's referring to that notion about the suffering lying in the activity of the thinking mind. She goes on to say, in a way we sit for no purpose. That's one side of practice. But the other side is that we want to be free from suffering. Not only that, but we want others to be free from suffering. So a key point in our practice is to understand what suffering is. If we really understand suffering, we see how to practice, not just while sitting, but in the rest of our life. We can understand our daily life and see that it's really not a problem. I'm just missing a few paragraphs and she goes on to say, there are two kinds of suffering. One is when we feel we're being pressed down, as though suffering is coming at us from without as though we're receiving something that's making us suffer. The other kind of suffering is being under, or just bearing it, just being it. And this distinction in understanding suffering is one of the keys to understanding our practice. So I think I say something like this in this talk, but sort of maybe I'll go around about the bush a little bit. <clears throat> So starting off with self and no self, it's not easy being a human being, as we all know. In the wealthy nations, psychological suffering seems to be increasing at an accelerating rate, and there is never enough mental health services to cater for the demand. There are many ways we could go into this and explore this, but for me, the key to understanding psychological suffering is the inherent sense of lack that is at the core of what we take to be our dominant sense of self. This dominant sense of self, our identity, if you like, goes by many names. In the psychological literature, it is referred to as the conceptual self or the socially constructed self or the narrative self. In the spiritual literature, we use metaphors like the self-centered dream or the separate self. Buddhism has always taught that this sense of self this personal sense of self has no essence, no reality. <clears throat> it is a mirage, an illusion. However, it still feels real because it is familiar to us. Even our sense of personal inadequacy feels familiar. However, this sense of inadequacy arises from the activity of the separate self itself. It's a, an activity rather than an entity. This sort of separate sense of self, this activity of thought, can never really experience peace or happiness because it cannot know the now. What's more, this sense of lack seems to increase in cultures which are competitive and individualistic. People strive to fill this sense of lack through engaging in what, as I mentioned last night, the Zen teacher David Loy calls lack projects, ranging from the pursuit of wealth, fame, beauty, education, anything to make us feel more real. 
But no matter how much we accumulate, it is never enough. There are so many ways we can evaluate ourselves as a personal failure in our culture. The self-improvement industry is massive, but again, to no avail. Research studies have found that personal failure is the biggest fear in our culture, even bigger than the fear of death, and followed closely by fear of rejection. So where do we go for comfort? Well, many of us turn to family or relationships, or creating family to fill this hole inside, and that can certainly work for a time. However, children become adults and move on. I don't know what it is these days, but 50% of marriages end in divorce, or eventually we lose our partner to old age, sickness and death. Ultimately, people change and everything is impermanent. Some religions offer the hope in salvation, in the sense of permanent soul that survives after death and lives forever in heaven. But what if that story doesn't quite do it for us? What do the wisdom teachings of the ages uh, have to offer? Joko Beck became infamous once for saying, give up all hope. But what she was pointing to is the essence of our practice. We will never find peace and joy in the future. So our journey starts with suffering and the desire to end suffering. This can be understood as a, a journey from form to formlessness and back again to form. We start with form, then we realize or recognize the formless when we practice just sitting. We recognize pure awareness as a constant. Awareness or consciousness is formless. You cannot see it, you cannot grasp it. You cannot find it. Form is changing all the time, while the formless is still and unmoving. Awareness is what knows, and form is what is known, but there is no gap between them in reality. However, when we get caught in the web of the spinning thinking mind, it superimposes itself on our experience, creating the sense that there is a me experiencing a feeling that is separate from the feeling. It creates the sense of a me that suffers. And the thinking mind says, I don't want this, and moves into the future, and moves away from the experiential reality of this moment. And this is what we call resistance, or experiential avoidance. Form is the objective world of everything we can see and touch and hear. It's the phenomenal world of impermanence that we experience within the container of time and space. The formless is the subjective, invisible dimension. Awareness knows form and also knows itself. <clears throat> we appreciate these two aspects of reality without getting caught in either side of the ditch in our Zen practice. Or to use the analogy of the wheel, we begin our journey on the rim of the wheel. We are not aware of awareness as our inner treasure. It is disregarded because it's always here, like the fish swimming in the proverbial water. We don't see the water, we don't see awareness. We can perfectly function well without being aware of being aware. Form is in constant motion on the rim of the wheel. It is our formless awareness that is the gnaw of form. 
We know form to be impermanent because, as the witness, we are always here now. It is the only constant in our life. We are the witness at the center of the wheel. This is what the Buddha discovered. Our essential self was never born and hence will never die. So to free ourselves from suffering, we need to inquire into this sense of self. The founder of Soto Zen, Ehe Dogen, who by no means was a psychologist, he was a medieval monk, said, to study the Buddha way is to study the self. That is to inquire into the, the dualistic self. To study the dualistic self is to forget the self. What he meant by forgetting the self is to forget, to let go of thoughts, to let go of clinging to self. And to forget the self is to be actualized by the 10,000 things. The 10,000 things in, is a saying in Chinese to just describe the infinite variety of phenomena. So to forget the self to be actualized by the 10,000 things is to be non-separate from them. To make this sound more practical, I will give you a couple of thought experiments. These will help us to distinguish between the thoughts we get caught in and the actual direct experience of this moment, what Joko calls experiencing. <clears throat> we can free ourselves from unnecessary suffering, which is generated by thought, and also we can build a bigger container or capacity to hold and process intense, emotionally painful experiences like grief or fear. So thought experiment number one, resentment. <clears throat> this is an emotion that I would describe as an example of identification with thoughts and beliefs. The emotion arises because of the identification with thoughts or beliefs. So for example, a thought arises I will never be as good as he is. Or, I will never be able to afford to buy my own house because the market is now out of reach. Then another thought follows in quick succession. It's not fair. And then this is followed by a feeling, maybe anger, envy, resentment. These kinds of feelings can be seen as thoughts and feelings co-arising. And then another thought follows, it's my fault. I should not have spent all my money on that overseas holiday. Now I can't afford a deposit on a house. How stupid, I am an idiot, a loser, a failure. And then that thought is followed by another feeling, call it shame or self-hate. Now our thinking mind, which operates dualistically and judgmentally, is always trying to find someone something to blame. If it's not them, then it has to be me. So our felt experience is that someone, there has to be someone, has caused me to suffer. That someone or is either somebody we know or it might just be the abstract other, such as them or the system. Or if all else fails, it must be me. So this was what Joko was referring to when she was referring to the, that sense of the pressure coming from outside. If all else fails, sorry, so, so some, some dualistic psychotherapists will then say, well, 
your thoughts or your story is creating your suffering. You need to change your thinking or change your narrative. Look, and that's okay. I mean, that can work to a certain extent in the short term. But it still encourages us living just in the story world. It might be a positive story, but it's still a story. And stories are not totally reliable. You can't totally depend on them, like most things in life. But, you know, it has its place. But from the perspective of Zen practice or a non-dualistic therapy, we don't need to change the thought. We need to separate from the thought or let go of our attachment or clinging to the thought and come into the reality of simply just experiencing this moment. What are we really experiencing right now? What are you really experiencing right now? Just go to that. Like I'm breathing, I feel my breath, I'm hearing, I hear sounds, etc., etc. I'm feeling sensations. By stepping back and observing, we realize it is not somebody else or me creating the suffering. Suffering is arising because of the thought, as in because we are identifying with the activity of thinking. The identification with the activity of thinking is the suffering. The cause of suffering is not some external person or, or some fictional me. The cause of suffering is the fusion with the thought. Again, just don't believe me. You have to experientially dis explore this yourselves and uh, be as aware of, as you can when you feel some kind of discomfort, dissatisfaction, anxiety, down feeling. See if you can pick up what the thought might be. When we let go of the thought and rest in the experience of being just this moment, non-separate from just now, who is the one to blame? You will never find him or her. You will never find the system or them. Now let's take another example. Um, this time the emotion is not generated by a thought. We are simply experiencing, say, fear. There may be an unconscious thought that is generating the fear, but it is outside our, our awareness, let's say. So let's just work with the fear we are experiencing. So thought experiment number two, fear. <clears throat> this next thought experiment was derived from a conversation <clears throat> facilitated by the contemporary teacher of uh, a non-dual teacher called Rupert Spira that I found on YouTube with the title, Suffering is Contained in a Single Thought. I have changed and paraphrased the conversation. So let's say you have identified fear as the problem. Or it could be grief, but let's work with fear. Recall a memory of feeling afraid and then imagine you are afraid of going to a dinner party. You don't know why you're afraid of going to a dinner party. There's no trigger, no thought you can identify. 
So this is an example of practicing directly with feeling rather than thought. So let's inquire into your experience of fear. There is a feeling of fear. And the feeling of fear is interpreted by your thinking mind as a problem. The thinking mind makes a judgment. I don't like this. I wish it wasn't here. Now, it's important we make a distinction between the feeling of fear and the resistance to fear manifesting as the thought. It is crucial to distinguish between fear and resistance. Then you can notice both the fear and the thought. I don't like this. But now, the resistance, we can now, let's put the resistance to one side. Because the resistance is not the fear. Take the resistance away, let go of the thought, and return directly to the experience of fear, without any resistance to it. Experience the raw fear independently from the thought. I don't like it, and I want to get rid of it. Now tell me about the fear from that point of view. Is there anything problematic about it? You go to the fear, you experience a sensation, an energy flow, which has a certain intensity to it. Intensity is not necessarily a problem. People love to go on, you know, those rides and theme parks for excitement. A certain intensity to the experience of that. No problem with that. Now, can you experience the fear without thought of the past or future? Can you just experience the sensation of fear? The sensation of fear, any sensation, is always now. Normally, our default is to try and move away from it, to get away from unpleasant feelings, and take refuge in something else, such as the TV or a bottle of scotch or something like that. I suggest you do the opposite. Move closer to the fear. Approach it. Take refuge in the fear itself. This is no different than taking refuge in the now. Like when we go on holiday to forget all our cares and concerns when we are free of thoughts about past and the future. But you don't have to literally go on holiday. You can take refuge in the now whenever you want. It is resistance that is the problem, not the fear. The experience of fear is not the problem. The problem is the resistance. So resistance can be summarized in the following thought. I wish I could replace what is present with what is not present. That's it. Therein lies our suffering. The suffering is not in the fear. Fear is neutral. It is in our resistance to it that is the suffering. And our resistance is contained in that single thought. It is that insubstantial. Whenever we are suffering, our suffering is contained in a single thought. I don't like this. I don't like what is present. I want, I, I want what is not present. That's it. That single thought. The suffering is never in the experience itself. I'm not talking necessarily about an acute physical pain, but I'm talking about that the sensations of fear or anxiety. In other words, we, we allow a single thought to spoil our, our happiness. 
And no one is having the fear. There is just fear. You are knowing the fear. There is just the experience of fear. But there is no separate person having the fear. There is just the experience of fear. If you look for that person, you never find it. So in this way we say, we realize the end of suffering moment by moment. So taking refuge, so in Zen Buddhism we have this practice called taking refuge. Sometimes this gets misunderstood, almost like taking refuge is escaping from the harsh realities of life. However, this is not the meaning of taking refuge in Buddhism. Refuge in everyday life is usually understood as a safe haven, but the meaning in Buddhism is different. In Buddhism we take refuge in the three treasures. We take refuge in the triple gem, Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. Buddha is that which knows fear. Dharma is reality, the 10,000 things. Dharma is the diversity of form that we are experiencing moment by moment. Sangha is the community of practitioners that support each other to do this practice. Sometimes we experience fear. Taking refuge doesn't mean moving away from our experience. It actually means approaching our experience. It is not an escape. We take refuge in Buddha, but we also take refuge in Dharma, the phenomena we are experiencing. Suffering is the attempt to escape from experience. Resistance is suffering. When we take refuge, we let go of resistance and practice non-separation from life as it is. Another way of expressing this is that we take refuge in the now. The now is another word for Buddha, our essential self. The Jukai ceremony is really a ceremony of taking refuge. However, taking refuge is not something we do once. Taking refuge or being just this moment is what we will be practicing as often as we can remember to do so. At first we may be able to do this only for a few seconds before resistance kicks in and we get caught back in the self-centered dream about the past or the future. But if we persist with our practice, gradually, over time, we begin to take residency there in just this moment. We take refuge in the triple gem. They work together. We take refuge in the three treasures simultaneously. So in conclusion, taking refuge in the triple gem is really taking refuge in one precious gem that has these three different dimensions that are all interconnected. Buddha and Dharma are different aspects of one reality. The Buddha is mind, the invisible subjective aspect of reality that shines through and illuminates dharmas, like the moon illuminates all the phenomena at night time. The 10,000 things, the diversity of all phenomena manifesting as sensations, perceptions, colors, thoughts, feelings. Dharmas are inseparable from Buddha mind. Sangha is the relational principle of seeing and responding from both aspects of reality with wisdom and compassion thus harmonizing all beings. Therefore, when we sit together like this in Zazen, in the Zendo, we are taking refuge in the three treasures simultaneously. In the same way, 
the sanghas of the past maintained and passed on the Dharma, the teachings. Dharma has many different meanings. Reality is one meaning, the teachings is another meaning, there's other meanings as well. We can make friends with our ancestors who can help us on our way. Therefore, Sangha and Dharma connect us to our past and lay the groundwork for our future. Thank you all for being here tonight and listening.